We are going to pick up today's lesson in Acts chapter 27, where we left off last week. Um, And for those of you who missed it, I am not going to reprise the uh, Gilligan's Island um, exegesis. Um, Actually, I had a friend of mine who listens to us every uh, listens to these recordings and they're in Texas and I had warned him ahead of time. Uh, in the first five minutes of last week's session you will hear exegetical punditry. <laughs> and he goes, what do you mean? I went, just listen and you'll enjoy it. So for those of you who missed it, you can go to interaltar.com and at least listen to the first five minutes or try to get caught up to where we are today. Now, the drama of this particular segment of scripture, I think we effectively uh, brought to the fore last week. <clears throat> the size of this storm, the, the journey, and your handout has a map on the first page on purpose because we have been talking about various cities and places and where we have left Um, this boat is in the middle of the Mediterranean just west of Phoenix, Arizona. I mean Phoenix, Crete. So if you just look at your map you can see where we are right now. We had taken last week's journey approximately 20 days, 30 days uh, uh, worth of, of journey up to this point And you have the storm in verse 13 of Acts. They were just going to go from Fair Havens Crete, which you see in your map, and travel about 40 miles west to Phoenix. So they could winter there. That's all the reason they were going to make this journey. Because Fair Havens was not a port that you had a good enough harbor where they would be protected from the wind the whole time. And so they set out in verse 13 of Acts 27, the south wind blew gently and they supposed they'd have their purpose and verse 14, a tempestuous wind called a nor'easter struck down from the land and took hold of them and blew them off course. Now, because I like to do this, I overstudy, overprepare, and I was watching the news um, in Libya this last week. So there was this massive flood in Libya. The storm came on, let's see, it was September 10th hit Libya, hit this, um, uh, let's see, what was the area? It doesn't say exactly, at least in my notes here. And it has killed 10,000 people, the flooding, because the rain was so torrential that two dams burst and flooded the, the, the plains and wiped out entire villages they have a count of 10,000 dead and another 11,000 missing. And that's as of yesterday. 
And I thought, oh, okay, you know, typical provincial American. It's a storm, it didn't happen in my neighborhood, so, okay, that was interesting. We watched the Weather Channel, kind of like we watch uh, car wrecks along the side of a road. And then I thought, where did that water come from? That there was such a big storm that would cause this rain. And you go into the articles about this Libyan storm and you see a hurricane type swirl parked right over the top of Libya. They're called Medicanes. Mediterranean hurricanes. Medicanes. And you think, oh, you know, okay, because of climate change, they must happen every other week. And it hasn't, you know, they, they're just rare. No, they happen all the time, and they've been happening all the time for 2,000 years. So I decided to look up these things, and on page two of your handout, and for those of you who are listening, you need to download the, map, the maps and the photos that I have given you. On this particular map, this, you know, picture, at the bottom is from 2015. And if you look very carefully, you will see the outline of the island of Crete underneath the cloud. Do you see it? Look very carefully. Right above the circle of the center of the hurricane, you'll see a little outline drawn. You see that? Right above the circle. You have to look very carefully. That's Crete with a massive storm sitting on top of it in 2015. Now, if you look at the map above it, it's from 2021. And in this particular map, again, the picture, you can see the swirl with kind of the circle in the middle of the hurricane. Off to the left of it is a little dot. You see the little dot that's kind of drawn there? That's Malta. Malta is where Paul and the ship is headed. Crete is off to the very far right edge of that particular map at the top. If you look at the, you see a tiny little outline just over in the corner edge. That's Crete. So this, what I did is I googled storms between Malta and, and Crete. And this is what's popped up. So only two years ago, there was a storm the size of the Mediterranean Sea between Malta and Crete, which is exactly where Paul was traveling. So you think, Oh, yeah, they were in this, you know, this little storm. No, it's no little storm. This was a massive storm, a Medicaine. As John MacArthur wrote, I actually quoted this last week, only those who have been in a violent storm at sea can fully appreciate the terror the passengers and crews must have felt. 
the towering white-capped seas, the roaring of the wind, the violent rocking of the ship, at first the bow, and then the stern rose high up in the air, only to plunge quickly down again, the constant motion inducing sickness and making it difficult to stand, let alone walk. The wind-driven salt spray stinging and blinding those exposed on the deck. And worst of all, the looming reality of an awful death by drowning. All of these factors combine to unnerve even the most experienced sailor. And that's where we are today. In verse 17 of Acts 27, they have left Crete. They're just going to go up the street a little bit down the coast and they get blown south off course and it says they were afraid they were going to run aground in the Sistris, Sirtis, I'm sorry, S-Y-R-T-I-S. If you take the map that you have on your front page and you see the word Libya, right? you see the word Libya right there? The coast, that edge is known as Sirtis. So you can even put Acts 27.17 and the word S-Y-R-T-I-S on that little knob right there. They're afraid that they've already been blown 200 miles off course because Sirtis is known for its shoals. It's known as a graveyard of shipping back in that day. They have no idea where they are. They cannot see the moon. They cannot see the stars. When the sun rises, you kind of see the maybe a blurry glow. But you know, if there's a big storm during the day, the sun goes out. And you really don't know where the sun is. And if that storm is sitting on top of you, and you're being blown which every which way but loose I, I just the terror of this uh, and I could fur further dramatize this if you'd like so I was on one of the very first times I had a chance to do a, uh, a cruise in the Caribbean it was a group of writers and I was one of the teachers which you know hey somebody's got to suffer and so we would teach while we were at sea and then we were at port, we got to do all the tourist stuff. So it was kind of a neat thing. But we're at sea the first night, and after we had gotten out into the ocean, a storm came up. And you know, those cruise ships are designed to not rock. They have big planes that come out under the boat, like airplane wings. They literally pull them out to keep the boat from rocking and they anticipate where the storms are. So as soon as something comes up, the captain of the ship says, we're gonna go this way and try to go around it, kind of like an airline pilot does to avoid the storms, right? Well, sometimes the storms are too big. And that first night, we're sitting at dinner and we're into our food, <laughs> away from our food, into our food, away from our food. Some of us didn't handle it well. <laughs> so I go down to the, the doctor of the ship and he just looks at me like, little green, huh? I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing well. He goes, you know, it'll pass. 
uh, this is my suggestion, you just go up on deck and just let the fresh air keep you in. Then you can always hang over the side if you need to. Thank you very much for that medical advice. So I go, go up on the deck and I'm holding on as the ship is literally rocking. And I look over and the swimming pool in the middle of a cruise ship is emptied of water. Because every time it went, the, the water went and then you see the pumps trying to fill the swimming pool and then it goes the other way and the water goes out. I'm going, what have I gotten myself into? The next day, of course, it's perfectly calm. Everybody is fine and you get your sea legs. That memory on a tiny little rowboat, yeah, tiny, it was probably 150 feet long, had over 270 people on board. Still, that's not a very large ship. It doesn't have high sides. It's gonna be tossed and turned. They've taken down their sails. They can't steer. They're just being blown wherever the water's gonna take them. Verse 18. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Wow. This is no small squall. This is a violent Medicaid, a Mediterranean cyclone. So we pick up at that stage here and we carry on with our story. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, and this isn't because they didn't have food, it's because they couldn't eat. They were so sick. Paul stood among them and said, men, you should, have not, you should have listened to me. And, yeah, and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Because if you recall, he had said, I don't recommend we go beyond here. And they're like, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. You're a rabbi. Now realizing how many times was he, had, been, had he been shipwrecked? at least three times we know of prior to this, and he was adrift at sea for a day and a night. He's been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. You know, he's, he knows what he's talking about, but these guys look at him as a criminal, a prisoner on his way to Rome to go before Caesar, and he's some rabbi of some weird sect, and he's telling them, that he knows better, so they didn't listen to him. And now he says, yeah, maybe you should listen to me. <laughs> Verse 22, but he doesn't rub it in. He simply says, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Think of that statement for a second. Just stop there. Everyone on board is going to be alive, but the ship will be gone. Yeah, you're an idiot. 
I mean, they're kind of inextricably intertwined, don't you think? And no, he's very confident. Why? For this very night stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith. I have belief in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. Okay. This is the fourth time that we have a record of Jesus speaking to Paul that Paul wrote about or mentioned on the road to Damascus. In Acts chapter 18, verse 9, he is met in prison. In Acts 23, 11, he was also in prison and he had Jesus come to him. And now this time it's an angel comes and speaks to him <clears throat> and gives him, <coughs> excuse me, comfort. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Angels are not kept from us by storms. Nor are they hindered by darkness. Seraphs think it no humiliation to visit the poorest of the heavenly family. If angels' visits are few and far between in ordinary times, they shall be frequent in our nights of tempest and tossing. Friends may drop from us when we are under pressure, but our conversation with the, the inhabitants of the angelic world will be more abundant. And with the strength and in the strength of love words brought to us from the throne by way of Jacob's ladder, we shall be strong to do exploits. Dear reader, in this, is this an hour of distress with you? Then ask for peculiar help. Jesus is the angel of the covenant, and if his presence be now earnestly sought, it will not be denied. What that presence brings in heart cheer, those remember who, like Paul, have had an angel of God standing before them in the night of a storm, when anchors could no longer hold and rocks were nigh. You know, we had asked last week, beginning of the class, why in the world does Luke spend 60 verses on this story? 60. A chapter and a half of the entire book is dedicated to this journey of shipwreck and despair. I think you look at this and other elements that we'll get to, that there is that idea. <laughs> Pastor Jim spoke to it today. If we only believe in the God or the miraculous, we're not believing in the totality of who God is. This is pretty miraculous ultimately, but at that moment, it certainly didn't feel like it. It was a bad day at the office. A really, really bad day. Everyone around Paul thinks they're gonna die. This is it. 
We've given up hope. And in the midst of that comes someone who believes completely in the providence of God in all things. This is extraordinarily illustrated a story from Donald J. Gray Barnhouse in his student days in France. He had led a girl to Christ who later married a French pastor and she often came over to the Barnhouse home and saw them taking a verse from a promise box. This little box had about 200 Bible promises handwritten on little papers that were rolled up in scrolls and then kind of dumped in the box. And whenever it was time or they felt a need, they would reach into the box at random and pick out what is God's promise for us today and read it. She observed this, so she decided she would do the same thing in her home. So she hand wrote those same verses and put them in a basket. Years later during the war, her family, this family, had no food except for the potato peelings from a nearby restaurant. The children were hungry and were almost in rags. Their shoes were worn through. And in her lowest moment, the woman turned in desperation to the promise basket and prayed with tears blinding her eyes, Lord, I have such a great need. Is there a promise here that's really for me? Show me, Lord. Show me that I can in this time of famine, nakedness, peril, and sword that you are, have a promise for me. And when she reached up to the basket, because her eyes were blinded by tears, the entire basket fell over onto her lap. And she realized all of the promises were hers. We struggle many times in our lives. We believe that we have some and we ask God for more. We pray, Lord, give us. We wrestle like Jacob with the angel. Bless me. And God steps back and went, you have all of it. Don't you know that? At this moment in time, it's hopeless. And I'll tell you, there's many times in our lives where we run into something, we just think there's no answer to this. There's no hope. I give up. Or, you know, I'll just motor on, try to get through until to, tomorrow. And God's promise for today is all of them. And tomorrow, his promise for tomorrow is all of them. He never holds back. But of course, Paul ends his nice little speech with the phrase, but first we have to run aground on some island. Okay, thanks Paul for the sermon, and yay. Okay, in other words, life is never going to be perfect. You know, we might get through today, but guess what? 
there's going to be worse or there's going to be something else maybe not worse it's just going to be something else verse 27 when the what day or what night how many 14 days now just stop for a second what's what's the date today the 17th and when was Labor Day the fourth that means ever since Labor Day you have been on a boat and, and cannot see the sky and you can't stop throwing up because you're so seasick you can't eat you can't see you're, you, you're, we all gonna die we know it oh wait now it's day 12 we're still here and it's not getting any better here's another thing go back to that second page of your handout of that storm picture storms don't last for 14 days they move on they, they move inland or they move outland they even the hurricanes that sweep through Florida you hear about the you know the bad rain up in North Carolina or whatever a couple days later and then it's gone and it might dump a little bit of rain in England by the time it gets there but it's nothing like it was before I'm gonna say something that I don't find in any of my notes and I could be probably thoroughly disciplined um, in the afterlife but I think there's something supernatural going on here this storm is following them it's not blowing away it's moving with them across the Mediterranean these things blow south they blow north they 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 move they don't blow due west and if they do they dissipate after a couple days you know because it's usually the landmass that creates the swirl it builds and builds and builds and then it gets closer to land you you've all watched enough movie you know weather channel stuff and then it hits land and then things are kind of it kind of undercuts its ability to swoop up the the um, the water from the ocean and pull it into the clouds and dump it back down but this thing is following them for two weeks <laughs> next time you think that there's no end to your difficulty think of Paul in a boat with a bunch of pagans who are ready to slice his throat, kill him, get rid of this whole thing. This is, this is not a happy time. And Paul is staying firm in his belief in the Lord. When the 14th night has come, as they were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, have to stop there because 
I have to correct our map. Because if you look at that, the Adriatic Sea is identified where on your map? Up between Italy and um, Yugoslavia. At least called their Lyricum back then. The Adriatic Sea, that is where we call, that's what we call the Adriatic Sea today. The Ionian Sea is where they were. But it was not called the Ionian Sea back in Paul's day. It used, during the time of the scriptural writing, the Adriatic Sea covered this whole region. But later, in geography and for whatever reason, they changed the name of this part of the sea between Sicily and Greece as the Ionian Sea. So, in case everybody says the Bible is wrong, at the time, it was right. When Luke wrote this, that's the only name they had. They didn't have the Ionian Sea, but that's, in case you ever look it up on a map, you go, well, why is it? So, was it ever, was it the Mediterranean Sea at the time? It was called the Mediterranean Sea the whole time. Yeah, Mediterranean Sea is the long football field. But then these inlet areas, you know, it's like you call the Indian Ocean. Is it really an ocean? Nah, kinda. It's part of an ocean, but it's identified because it's closer to a part of the world that we can identify where it is. All right? So it's about midnight. Again, you have to kind of stop. Midnight? You mean they're not asleep? <laughs> I mean, they're being rocked to sleep. <laughs> But at midnight, the sailors suspected they were nearing land. How? How would they suspect they were nearing land? Probably they're hearing waves crashing somewhere. The smell changes out in the ocean because if there's land close by you're going to get a different uh, fragrance there's things will change and the veteran sailors will tell you if I can close my eyes I can tell you when we're getting close to land I can just sense it even the air changes interesting so it's midnight they can't see the stars they can't see the moon but they suspect that they're nearing land so they took a sounding, and that's where you drop a line off of the edge of the boat with, I don't, you know, there's all sorts of different ancient ways of doing it, but you drop the line until it hits something, and then you pull it up, and then you measure how many fathoms. Anybody know how long a fathom is? Any sailors in our room? Six feet, approximately. So a, my, if I do this, this is approximately six feet wide. And that was basically the <coughs> breadth of a man's wing spread. And so they would measure. You think of, you think you take the rope and you go one, two, three. You see how I'm doing that by making the motion? That's a fathom. So they took a sounding and they found it's 20 fathoms. Well, that's 120 feet. That's a pretty good draft underneath the boat no fear of running into uh, rocks or shoals. 
But a little farther, they took a sounding again, and now it's 15 fathoms or 80 feet. Now, that's a big change. That's 40 feet less of a draft. That tells you they're moving toward shore because as you go to the shore, it gets more and more shallow. So, fearing that they might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern. The detail here is just extraordinary. They four, let four anchors down from the stern and prayed for dawn so they could see where they were, or at least have a general idea where they were. Now again, try to picture this. So we're in this boat, the bow is in front of me, the stern is behind me, and it says they let four anchors down on the stern. It's probably two off of the one edge and two off of the other to keep the boat from swinging around. It kind of holds it in position so that they're not suddenly facing the wrong direction. So they're trying to hold where they are, waiting for dawn. Meanwhile, verse 30, another little drama picks up. The sailors are seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat. Remember there was a life raft, or not truly a life raft, but it was the, the secondary pull along, you know, for a guy with a, an, R, uh, an RV needs to pull their, their car behind them. That's the one they used to get to the shore if they had to anchor offshore. So, but they had pulled it in early in this uh, thing and secured it on the ship itself. So they're trying to lower the ship's boat of the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors on the bow. I mean, how do you keep that secret? This thing isn't that big, but it is night. And some people are asleep. They're trying to escape. And Paul said to the centurion, the soldiers, um, our sailors are trying to take off. They're trying to abandon ship. And unless the men stay on the ship, you will not be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes to the life raft, to the ship's boat, and let it go. Now they just complicated matters. Because now if they get close to shore, they can't put people in the small boat to go to shore and come back. They have just eliminated that option. But it was either that or let the pilot and the ship sailors and all the other people who are dealing with sails and everything else, they're gone. I mean, the Roman soldiers don't know how to sail. So they can't fly this plane. They know how to ride in it, but they don't know how to fly it. Verse 33, as the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day. Last night was the 14th night. This is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. I'd be awful hungry after two weeks. I don't know about you. Now, granted, it may be that they were taking small portions just for sustenance, because if you go that long without food, and you also have to think, they're in a salt water sea. So they're 
water is limited as well, other than collecting whatever rained into the boat. So I suppose they would have enough drinking water. All you have to do is tip your head back, and I suppose it would just pour in. There are verse 34, therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. I wonder if he said, give us this day our daily bread. Isn't that interesting? And when he has said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. This is not communion. People have said, oh, he, pref- he, had, you know, he did the Last Supper here. No. Every time they would break bread, it was just basically a way of describing how they took a meal. They ate, were encouraged, and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. This was a big decision by the owner of the ship who was on board because that's the entire economic reason that they were going from Alexandria to Rome for is to deliver wheat and make money. They just threw their cash over the side. Now when it was day, verse 39, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. Have to stop there, take a look at your first page map, bottom left hand corner is the island of Malta, which is where they landed. And you see the little thing called St. Paul's Bay. It's named St. Paul's Bay because tradition is that this is where they landed. The main capital is Valletta, which is to the southeast. They didn't land there. They probably, (coughs) excuse me, they probably passed it in the night. (coughs) St. Paul's Bay is fairly well known now because of this passage and has been explored exhaustively, archaeologists have found the wreckage of eight Roman-era ships in the the bottom of St. Paul's Bay. And probably there were an awful lot more because the way the bay is shaped, it is deceiving. It looks inviting. But there are shoals underneath the water on the way in. And if you don't know the path, you're going to run aground. If you go there today, you know, they have big red buoys and markers saying, don't come here, you know. Bad zone. Well, they didn't have that back then. So Malta. I have to talk about Malta. And I do that because I can and I spent time on it, so you have to listen. <laughs> so taking a look at this little tiny island. I want you to take a look at this map that I create, put, I found, and it's in your handout. Okay, it's probably on your next page. And please ignore the typo of the spelling of Mediterranean. 
I like to prove that I don't know how to spell, and I love putting it on display for all of you. But that's, that's, that's who I am. Now, find Malta on this map. It's a little dot right under Sicily. That little dot is where Paul landed. Think about this for a second. This island is 122 square miles. Scottsdale is 180 square miles. Just for comparison. You could put all of Malta inside of Scottsdale and have room left over for Glendale. Seriously, you put Malta and Glendale together and you've got Scottsdale, square miles. I looked it up. That's, in the scale of things, it's not even a postage stamp. It's an ink pen dot in the middle of the sea. Remember when I just said something supernatural is going on here? If they had been 10 miles south, they would have missed Malta. And if you look on this little map, the next place to the west is Tunisia. And that's 200 miles away. They would not have lasted. That would have been another week at the rate that they were going. If they had missed it 10 miles to the north and gone in between Malta and Sicily, they could very well have ended up in Gibraltar, for all we know. Because they would have passed by everything and just kept sailing into oblivion. Instead, this is why I had to find this and, and show it to you. God's providence, and by the way, you can find Crete on this map. Go directly to your right in that little tiny spot over on the edge of the circle. That's the edge of Crete. This whole time, they're moving around trying to find and trying to live for two weeks, and they run into the tenth smallest country in the world. And that's a fact. It's the tenth smallest country in the world. But there are 475,000 people that today that now live there. It's the fifth densest country in the world. You have no place else to go. You can't build up. You can't build out. You just build on top of each other. So they have half a million people crammed today on this tiny little island. This tiny little island was conquered by Augustus, defeating the Carthaginians in 218 BC. And so for 200 years, it's been under Roman rule. Augustus would use veterans to settle on, on, on Malta, but there was such a strong Phoenician culture there, nobody spoke Greek. 
They didn't speak <coughs> Latin. They spoke Punic. If you think of the Punic Wars, this is where the people are from. Even today, as close as they are to Italy, Italy is not even their national language, although they understand it, but it's Maltese and English are the languages of Malta. And Maltese is apparently some blend of Phoenician and Arabic and Latin, and it's just this glumbled, unique language that's not spoken anywhere else in the world. In World War II, this island was the base for the Allied invasion of Italy. And because the people were so um, helpful, because they were, let's just put it this way, the, the island of Malta was wiped out in World War II because the Allies bombed the heck out of it. And then the Germans and the Italians bombed the heck out of it because the Allies used it as their base. And so it was just, the whole place was destroyed. And the, um, the country was given the George Cross from Britain for their gallantry. It didn't join, the, they became part of Britain and joined the Commonwealth in 1964 and became an independent republic only 50 years ago, 1974. I mean, you think this part of the world is, you know, long established in historic places. Yes, they are, but as an independent people, they have only been independent for 50 years. It is a 90% Roman Catholic country today, 90%. Anyway, at the time, these sailors, however, didn't recognize the land, probably because the sailors would have recognized Valletta, since that would have been the normal place for them to dock, because there's a natural port, you know, harbor there, and that's where things would be offloaded. But they're up in St. Paul's Bay. They cut off their anchors, verse 40, and left them in the sea and loosened the ropes that tied the rudders to keep, so they could actually try to steer. And they hoisted their foresail to give themselves a little boost to try to get to the shore, because they could see it. After two weeks, they were desperate to get to land. <clears throat> but, as happens in life, they struck a reef. Bow first, crunch. Imagine you're in the boat. You're going, yay, we're getting closer, we're getting closer, we're getting closer. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. We're stuck. We can't back up because the waves are pushing them in. And now the waves are beginning to break the ship into pieces behind them. It says the stern was being broken up by the surf. So let's draw the dramatic picture and put it on the movie screen of your mind. We're in this boat, the front of it's stuck in the rocks. You turn around, ah, uh, the rudder's gone. And now we're sinking bow, uh, stern end first into the water. And there's rocks under us. 
Verse 42, it gets better. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners. Hooray! <laughs> Not only are we stuck on the rocks, the soldiers are starting to pull their swords out of their scabbards. Why would they do that? Because their lives were. Exactly. It is called the Code of Justinian. The Code of Justinian is that if you were in charge of a prisoner and the prisoner escaped, their charge would fall on you. So if there were murderers on board who were under a death penalty, these soldiers would then take that judgment on themselves. So the idea is, just kill them, then we don't have to face that. Yeah, we would have lost them, but they didn't run away at least. <laughs> I mean, there's that. You know, it's like ask for forgiveness and not permission. It's just, it's just get rid of them all. But their boss, the centurion, verse 43, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. This guy really wanted to deliver Paul to Caesar. He must have had either a relationship with him or he felt extremely um, responsible and knew there was something about him. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. <laughs> I mean, just think, oh, you know, abandoned ship, everybody, you know, every, all people for themselves. And people are jumping off the ship into the water trying to grab a piece of flotsam and jetsam and anything floating by and then do the old flutter kick on the way into shore fully clothed, by the way. Probably. You know, they just get in the water and go. And they're trying to make it to shore. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. And then our lovely writer turns to chapter 28. After we, notice Luke is including himself, after we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta and the native people, ESV is very gentle here because the Greek word for native is barbaros. <laughs> so it's the barbaric people. And this was not a pejorative. This wasn't a negative statement. It was a descriptive one as people who did not speak Greek. So any non-Greek speaking person was considered a barbarian, a barbaros. We even have it in uh, 1 Corinthians 14. Paul writes about foreigners, but he's using the word barbaros in 1 Corinthians 14 because these were people who didn't understand one particular language and that's how you describe them. So it wasn't they were being mean to them, it's just... And there was been some interesting theories. Because they're, they're speaking some form of Phoenician, like Punic, that to the ear, it would sound like they were saying bar, 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 bar. So that's where the barbarian came from. That's a theory anyway. These people showed unusual kindness. And they kindled a fire and welcomed us all. Because 
Yay! It had begun to rain. <laughs> and in the Greek, the words here is constructed means the rain that stood upon them. This wasn't a little sprinkle. It was another deluge. You wonder if the storm, because remember in the middle of a storm, there's a, like a little bit of a respite, and then the back half. So it blew them to this point. They were able to get on land, and then the rest of the storm hits, maybe. And it was cold. Imagine. And of course, you know, just like any other normal day, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, which means he's helping out, he's not being above anybody, and put them on the fire, a viper came out of the heat and fastened on his hand. This is just a no good, horrible, very bad day. <laughs> just the picture of it. There, finally, you know, two days, we're weak, we're tired, let's get some firewood. And he, obviously when he picked up the bundle of sticks, the snake was in it. And when he put it on the fire, the heat comes up, he goes like this and the snake goes Arr! and grabs a hold of it. Now the word there is eknida. Echnida is the, in Greek mythology, half woman, half snake that lived in care and was the mother of monsters. There's been a lot of theories about this snake. Some would say it was a garden snake, completely harmless, just annoying. You see a snake in your backyard, you get, eh. well, in Arizona, you're not sure what kind it is, but it's the you know, average everyday garden snake. The problem is, is the people's reaction to it. They saw the snake and they go, that's not good. This is a bad snake. They would know. Yeah. But here's the other challenge. Today, modern day Malta has no snakes on it. None. They've eradicated them. So there are those who would say this whole story was made up because there's no snakes in Malta in the 21st century. <laughs> well, 2,000 years ago, there may have been a few, but they didn't like them, so they got rid of them. Hey, I went to high school in Hawaii. The regulations about snakes on that island are rigid. You cannot import them for any reason. They would even catch guys trying to bring their boa constrictors onto the state by wrapping the snake around their body and flying in. And the thing is, when they, they get off and their baggage claim, their body is starting to do this. And they're going, wait, that's not normal. <laughs> And they find these guys with trying to bring in snakes into the island. Oh and there are very few on that island. Mm -hmm. If they're there, they've been brought in from, you know, basically the black market. Same kind of thing here in Malta. They would get rid of them. But this viper, and that word viper, that word viper, echnida, is the same one that Je same word Jesus has used in Matthew 23, 23, where he called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. Same word. You're a brood of poisonous snakes. He wasn't speaking lightly. He wasn't saying you're a brood of garden snakes that are completely harmless. 
No, you are full of poison and you kill people. That's what Jesus was saying. So here, this viper comes out, fastens to his hand, he rears up. Oh, look at that. The people going, oh my gosh. They saw the creature and said to one another, there's no doubt this man is a murderer because they're a superstitious people. And though as he escaped from sea, justice has not allowed him to live. The Greek word in there for justice is the Greek word D-I-K-E, D-K. And D-K is the daughter of Zeus, and we see her in our judicial system as a woman holding scales. Justice who would listen to the people and then decide right or wrong. They are saying, using their pagan God's understanding, that this man obviously is guilty of something. Paul, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. You know, America's current poet laureate has written a poem about this. Her name is Taylor Swift. <laughs> Notice these scintillating lyrics. I shake it off. I shake it off. I, I, I shake it off. I shake it off. I, I, I shake it off. Shake it off. I, I, I shake it off. Shake it off. Shall I continue? No. no. It goes on for another four lines. So, yeah, Taylor Swift knows her Bible. No, I'm kidding. Sorry. I couldn't resist because all I could think is shake it off, shake it off. Anyway, um, he shook off the creature into the fire, suffered no harm, and they waited for him to swell up and fall down dead. Now, how long do they wait? We don't know how poisonous this particular spider is. My understanding, if someone is uh, bitten by a rattlesnake, it can swell up, but it takes time for the venom. It's my understanding. It takes time before it's really deadly. That's why you can get to some place. But there are certain snakes, especially in the more exotic locations of this world, it's not very long, maybe 30 minutes and you're gone. There's no recovery. But they waited a long time and no misfortune came to him. So they changed their minds and he's no longer a murderer. Now he's a god. I call that the fickle nature of public opinion. You're a murderer or you're a god. Depending on how you respond or answer your Twitter, um, you are either a hero or a villain, and it's just craziness like that. Okay. You know what? I'm looking at the time, and I can sense that in three minutes they're going to want these doors open and redoing the, war the, uh, the room for the next event this afternoon. So this is a good stopping point. As you go through this week, I'd recommend reading ahead so you get some kind of idea of the rest of the story. To let you know how my plan is, my plan is to finish the rest of chapter 28 next week 
and then get into chapter 29. There is no chapter 29 in Acts. <laughs> but Acts ends so abruptly. There's always a lot of questions what happened to Paul afterwards. And we will look into that a little bit, dealing with the traditions and things of that nature. That'll wrap up our time in this, and then we'll go into Colossians. So that's the, uh, at least that's the plan. Um, I never know exactly um, where that's going to roll. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. The extraordinary lessons of your providence and your provision in the darkest of days is what we can take from this into our week, into the rest of our life, actually. Storms may come, snakes may bite, rocks may crash, the boat we're in may just be gone, and yet you're there with us all the time, even if we don't think you're there. And we praise you and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.